0: Hello and welcome to 75 Card Pickup, a Magic the Gathering podcast for tuning and building constructed decks week to week. Joining me is Magic Online Grinder and prolific deck builder Baker Neenan, better known
1: by his Mikko name, VTCLA. What's good, Baker? I'm doing good. New spoilers. Very excited. It's magic time. What are some of the ones you're most excited about?
0: I mean, the cards I'm excited about are all all aggressive cards. Like I, The card I've got pulled up just to start with was Skyclave Pickaxe which is a, an artifact equipment for a single green mana. When Skyclave Pickaxe enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control, and then Landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, equip creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. So in my mind, this lets you pile on damage very quickly. There are a lot of solid green one-drops, kind of for other archetypes, but I think that you could still make it work. Even just as like getting going right away with like an edge wall innkeeper or something silly seems like a little bit like not where you would first go. But then once you're looking at like, well, I want all these kind of like creatures to keep putting on to this thing. I like the idea of more card draws that I'm continuing to hit my land drops. Like something like that starts looking appealing to me. And then obviously there's just kind of other good aggressive creatures. You can put this on like a Fervent Champion or whatever other red or white one drops, I would assume, because we have the the green white duel there as well. Something like that. I just wanna I want to get attacking with this thing real badly.
1: Yeah, and the, the reason you want green one drops is of course that it allows you to play a, a creature on turn one and then play this on turn two and then immediately play land and start attacking for for two extra damage. So yeah, the the innkeeper plan does make a lot of sense, just like a gruel innkeeper beatdown list, like we've seen a decent amount before. That was like back in shortly pre and post oko standard that was somewhat popular and then this is just another good tool for that
0: yeah exactly just being able to turn something sideways on that first turn for three damage and then hopefully keep drawing cards is is kind of perfect even though the the creature isn't exactly what you would think of in an aggressive deck right but that was my first inclination was to go for something like that gilded goose also seems like a potentially interesting one just because evasive two power flyer right away is interesting and you don't always need to use that mana the first turn anyway so you can kind of get away with just suiting that thing up eventually you might have to tap it for the for the mana but then and miss your two points of damage but then once there's nothing else going on, or you've used the food. It's pretty free to attack again.
1: Oh, I just remembered. It also reequips for two in a crate.
0: It does have a regular equip cost. All that cycle of the colored equipment artifacts are very expensive to reequip. They kind of get around that by getting your first equip free, which frequently that's what you want anyway. What you just needed to start making an impact right away, and then it can be a mana sink later when you don't when you have mana lying around.
1: Yeah, so I actually was pretty excited for this card as well, but I was thinking about it less in Standard than I was in Modern because obviously fetch lands turn this up to eleven. It's tricky to like make all the pieces work together. So like one thing that's really cool about this is just pairing it with step links, and then they printed a red step links, so you can just kind of play twelve links with this, and then. Since you have so much of that effect now, like, and you just stack this on a links, then you get to start looking at cards like Renin-Six or Renegade Rallyer, which are ways to, like, rebuy fetch lands to make sure that you get, like, this continuous chain of lands to just pump out a ton of damage every turn. And then also maybe, like, those can play into some sort of longer game because they're getting you this mana advantage, or Renegade Rallyer can just bring back a one drop if you need threats. So I was, I was kind of interested in that shell. The main problem with it is that by far one of the most popular meta archetypes is Prowess decks playing four lava darts, which makes playing eight copies of Stepling's a pretty sketchy proposition. So that might have to get shelled for the time being, but I still think there's a decent amount of power here in putting this on like Monastery Swiss sphere and just going to town with that because... They're still pushing for damage a turn with it. You even get the extra damage the turn you play it. So just like slapping that on something like Swiss Spear or Soulscar Mage, you could see building a shell like that. Those also pair nicely with Scale Up, which also plays well in the Seplinks version. But you know we're we're less into that. So you have a lot of ways to like quickly present a turn three kill. So in that case. This thing is just pushing 8 or 12 damage, depending on if you're double-striking something. So it it does a lot. And there's probably more ways to leverage this as well. You could go, again, something like the Core Duelist route. That's a single white for a 1-1 that has double-strike if it's equipped. Like, you could go nuts with something like that. But I think just, like, any cheap aggressive deck that's trying to win primarily by pushing combat damage has to be at least somewhat interested in this. I guess the prowess
0: decks do kind of eat up a lot of that space because they're kind of functionally like what Zoo used to be anyway. Burn and big prowess creatures instead of something like wild knock-at-all and tribal flames. But I think that given how fast you can stack up damage,
1: it might be fast enough that it could actually keep pace. All right, so I have another aggressive card that I'm pretty fond of and I'm sure you're going to love. So this is Luminarch Aspirant. It's one and a white for I believe mean, a human cleric. It is a one one, and it says at the beginning of combat on your turn, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. So the floor here is you. You play it main phase one. It targets itself. It's a two two now. Next turn you untap. You target itself again on your next combat, and you're attacking with a three three. So then it's just watch wolf, and but it's going to keep growing every turn. Now that's if you're targeting itself. The thing is, this doesn't necessarily use counters on itself that well, because its base power and toughness aren't amazing, it doesn't have any fancy keywords or anything. If you start pointing these counters at something with flying, lifelink, double strike, any type of keyword, those get a ton of extra value. You can also use them to just punch through like whatever stat line gets you the cleanest attacks. So if you have like A 2 3 and a 3 4, and your opponent has a 3 3, then suddenly you have two 3 4s and you're pushing 6 damage instead of 3, which is a lot more value than just the 1 1 would typically entail. The rate on this is insane, the flexibility on it is amazing. It also plays into a lot of synergies, like Conclave Mentor is still a card in Standard, so this is easily the best way in Standard to distribute plus one, plus one counters currently. This two-drop is just like one of the best white two-drops they've printed, and I expect it to be an insanely important player in Standard for the most part, and quite possibly even bridge over to Pioneer, depending on like what other tools you can find access to for it.
0: Yeah, this card jumped out to, uh, at, to me right away as just powerful. Like I tweeted about it and I kind of got like a mixed response and I was I was feeling like am I just misevaluating this card for a minute? So I'm glad that you brought it up because I think this card's great. Following up a one drop with this means that your opponent is put into this kind of awkward position where they have to kill your value 2 drop say, with a Stomp or an Eliminate or a Heartless Act or whatever, but the one-drop is still hitting them in the face over and over. All they've done is remove future power, really. Not actually solved the, you know, probably three-power attacker that's already hitting them. White also has seasoned blade, and dumping counters onto a creature that can gain Indestructible is a tried-and-true tactic from, like, a year-ago's standard, where Adanto vanguards started getting soaring counters, And they just became impossible to deal with. Even if the Sorin was gone, it still was hitting you for six and you couldn't kill it. There's not really great exile removal around right now. I very much like this card. If there is a mono-white deck, I assume we're playing this because this is a great two-drop. All we need is some good one-drops to back it up uh, that actually function with it. Unfortunately, it's a cleric. Why does it have to be a cleric? (laughs)
1: Yeah, because you want to curve the one party member into the other. I think you'll be fine.
0: I know. If I'm if I, that's all I'm doing, I'm probably okay. They still have to kill my Luminarch Aspirant. And then my 2-3 is now bigger than any future stomps. And I'm probably just okay with it, right?
1: Yeah, and you could
0: just play the Warrior next turn. Exactly, and then just play Seasoned Hellblade. But that's, like, the great thing about this, right? Is it's, like, it's kind of got pseudo-haste. You can play this on turn 3, and obviously you would have preferred to play it on turn 2. But, like, if you draw it that turn, you can still put it down get the plus one plus one counter onto your two drop or your one drop or whatever that's good white doesn't get very much pseudo haste or actual haste
1: you're, you're also going to place a f- somewhat high value here on like having access to evasive creatures i think when building around this this is going to encourage you to put more flyers in your deck when you're building these mono white archetypes it's unclear what that looks like i didn't see any particularly exciting flyers there's like a one mana one one flyer with some text that's not super thrilling There's like a 1 and a white for a 1-1 flyer that has landfall, put a counter on it. That's probably not that amazing in our like 20 land white deck, but I'm sure we'll find something.
0: Yeah, I assume that there's going to be some decent options. Also, it's probably just worth going back and looking at what's available in standard. Actually, now that I say that, one of the cards that's probably just great with this is Selfless Savior. Because if they can't actually kill this thing, it grows pretty quickly.
1: You, you can either use that to really put them in the removal bind, where you have two important-to-kill threats and their first removal doesn't get either, or you can just make this the one it-must-kill threat by just having it stack on itself, and Selfless Savior can just play defense there. And that'll kind of depend on how much removal your opponent generally has access to, or if you're able to grow this out of damage range using the tempo that Selfless Savior buys. Uh, And either way, just having Selfless Saver is another way to sweep Wraths, because that is the one weakness of this card. So strong options there, where I I think that makes me more excited for this white deck in Standard.
0: It is worth noting also that the more popular removal spell, and this could obviously change because it's a new format, but the most popular black removal spell has been Heartless Act. And as soon as this thing puts a counter on itself, Heartless Act misses, I mean it technically does something just it's not something anyone wants to do so i think that that's a, a small aspect of this card that's
1: actually worth noting the fact that this is cleric also kind of matters for another card Tabarex hopes demise so that's two and a black for a two two legendary demon cleric it has flying If it has five or more plus one, plus one counters on it, it has lifelink. And whenever whenever another non-token creature you control dies, put a plus one, plus one counter on Tabarax. And if that creature was a cleric, you may draw a card if you do lose one life. So this, and there's another cleric tribal card, Aura, Skyclave, Hierophant. Two white, black for a legendary core cleric, lifelink. For it's a three-three, and whenever it or another cleric you control dies, return target cleric with lesser converted mana cost from your graveyard to the battlefield. These together are pretty nice cleric tribal payoffs, but and there's also some cool plus one plus one counter synergy involved there. So I was looking at building a Conclave Mentor deck, and I think between the Abzan Triome and the white-black DFC land, you are likely capable of splashing these black cards into a white-green deck that's built around Conclays Mentor pretty reasonably. The question is, if you're willing to, I think we might be missing, like, a good sack outlet. you kind of have the Ozolith as your way of doing an Arcbound Ravager impression, kind of, where you can sack a creature with some counters on it and just, like, jam them all on a different one? For example, Tapirax is a pretty good use of that. Just have like an 8-8 flying Like You could also just try to build straight black-white clerics, and obviously Luminarch Aspirant is still going to be good there. But I, I just think that's like a, a potentially interesting way to take the Mentor decks in standard, is to just like say, hey, our two best cards are clerics. Let's explore that further.
0: Yeah, it is, it is nice that the white-black cleric is effectively just Wrath Protection, if you're curving out. Basically, only he will die because he will pick up your three drop. Your three drop will pick up your two drop. If you play a one drop, the two drop picks up the one drop, and so all they've really done is play a uh, a way to remove uh, what's his name, Aura's or something like that.
1: Aura Skyclave
0: Fire. Aura's Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire. Not at all. What yeah, thinking. exactly. Aura. Okay, so that card's decent. I I really do like the demon. The Demon seems like it could be very interesting, especially with the Aspirant. I'm not like totally sold on it. A lot of the busted cards have either been banned or are about to rotate. So it's possible that we're just moving back to a very fair standard where something like just making a bunch of large creatures via all these plus one plus one counter synergies and drawing some extra cards while you interact because Torbrax has, what would you call it, like a Midnight Reaper ability, I suppose? Like, that could just be good enough.
1: Yeah, and there's also, like, some nice hedge you can you get pretty freely because Scavenging Use is one of the best ways to abuse Harden the Scales effects anyway that is available to us. So you can get your mileage at stopping them from Uroing you without really interfering with your deck's primary plan. There are fewer clerics in this set than I, I was hoping for sure. I think we might need, like, another Cleric or two before this shell is quite worth it that's, like, actually leveraging our counter synergies. But once once we do, I, I think this weighted build is potentially promising. There's also, like, in Pioneer and, I suppose, maybe Historic, depending on what cards that has and eventually gets, uh, there's some promise to building a Collected Company version of... Like the scales decks before, that hasn't really made sense because you've just always had Walking Ballista as one of the best cards in your deck, and it just doesn't work with Collected Company at all. And obviously losing Walking Ballista hurts from the ban announcement that took out Heliod Ballista, but now you still get collected company is like a powerful way to abuse that. And also I think there was one of the early ways that people were using scales didn't actually lose that much from the ballista ban. And what people were doing then was they were trying to curve pelt collector or experiment one into winding constructor. The thing is, Hardened Scales wasn't even really very good in that shell, because it doesn't actually work with Experiment 1 and Pelt Collector very well. They just grow to the same size they were going to anyway, but they do so slightly faster, but they don't do even do so faster because you had to take a turn off to cast Hardened Scales itself. The addition of Conclave Mentor was actually a huge deal for that archetype, because now you get redundancy on the actually good scales effect, where now you get to start attacking with a 3-3 on turn 2, so much more reliably. And Collective Company now having two scales effects to find seems pretty decent as well. And Luminarch Aspirant could also be another promising tool for that deck as another 2-drop that can stack onto this. And I think the plan here is to just go Help Collector or Experiment 1 into Constrictor or Conclave Mentor into something like a Rishkar or any 3-drop that has counter synergies and triggers the Pelt Collectors. So, like, Yorvo is probably too hard to cast, but something like a Yorvo would make a lot of sense. Then you get to start attacking with a 5-5. Five, five. You also just get to use Clocos to give you some Wrath Protection pretty nicely. So I think that could be pretty promising, and it's something I, I want to explore with the new set, or it, maybe even before the new set comes out. That might be a nice little side project while, while we're waiting for the, the new cards to exist. So, all right, so what's what's the next card you want to talk about?
0: Ooh, the next card that's actually on my screen is Nighthawk Scavenger, which I feel
1: like is a card that you probably wouldn't like, but I would. So this is one black black for a star plus one three. Its power is equal to the number of types of cards in your opponent's graveyard plus one, and it has flying, death touch, and lifelink.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a Nighthawk that starts with one less power, but has the potential to have way more power i think it's pretty medium if your opponent's on control or something of that like it's just you know it's just a ball of stats at that point in any sort in like a mid-range battle it's still a giant evasive threat potentially especially just scaling into the late game where it actually will reasonably have just like six power or whatever can be quite relevant and against aggro this card is just bonkers this comes down. It will guaranteed at least trade with something. It gains you some life. It probably brick walls, you know, all of red small creatures or whatever. It makes chump attacking with like annex tokens just sound awful. Because if they, if this thing is like three or four power, you have to attack with five tokens just to equalize the, Nyco- the the scavenger and unlike many of the creatures that kind of just their their role is to hold the ground or gum up the board for the the longer game deck to take over this doubles as that and also the bane slayer that closes the door because once this thing is up to four or five power and you've stabilized otherwise it just starts hitting them and grows your life total out of range like i don't know that this will be a main deck card all the time, but this will be a very powerful sideboard card at the least for any black deck that needs to play against aggro ever. Assuming that that's part of the metagame, this card's going to see a lot of play.
1: It's probably not as big as you think it is on average. Since it only cares about your opponent's graveyard, there's a pretty limited capacity to inform how large it is with your own deck building and your own actions. I think it's typically going to be a about a 3-3 like through the mid game and like maybe a a 4-3 depending on if you can like snipe a planeswalker or your opponent's playing a lot of enchantment creatures right if you happen to kill an enchantment creature it gets to be a little bigger but I I figure a lot of the time it's going to be a lot more of the 3-3 to maybe 4-3 range and 6-3 is largely going to be not What's happening, especially because there's not really much in the way of fetch lands in this format. Definitely. That doesn't mean that it's not still pretty good against aggressive decks. If it's allowed to live, the main problem with it there, particularly against red decks, is they're pretty good at killing X3s for 2 mana, which is kind of a problem if your sideboard card is that easily worked around. It's not to say that like if you play a 3-drop and it trades for a burn spell, that's the end of the world, but your sideboard cards against, say, Mono Red are supposed to carry a lot of weight because they're typically pretty narrow. So you want them to be pretty reliably, not necessarily hard winning you the game every time you cast them, but at the very least like presenting a very significant Obstruction to their game plan and this isn't necessarily that if they're just like okay Well, I'm gonna kill it and just keep attacking you and in in that world. It doesn't really look that exciting It also like isn't that amazing if they're just gonna tap out for Embercleave the next turn anyway and just like okay My annex is huge now and it doesn't care that you put a a life-blink death Toucher in front of it It's just gonna murder you through that anyway like between that and Torbrand, its blocking capacities aren't as exciting as you would hope in this particular variant of Red and what they're typically going to look like. I think so. I think it's probably going to be a little more medium than you're expecting. But that said, I, there's still at least like enough raw rate here that if it's basically going to see if people show up without the ways to kill this, like it just lines up really well against whatever removal spells are popular on a given week it's not going to be a bad thing to bring like if people have too many bone crusher giants and shocks and not things that can kill it this is going to be a way to exploit that and you can get your mileage in but by default it, it i think it's a little bit too do nothing etb to be like super excited about
0: i don't know honestly like if they're bringing in like scorching dragon fires or leaving those in or something like i think i'm just okay with that well, they got a volcanic hammer. You got a volcanic hammer? Did I? I just completely missed that. We should jump to that quick. That's all. That's just perfect segue right there. What is this thing called?
1: So, royal eruption is one in a red for a sorcery. It deals three to any target, and it has kicker five. And if you if it, you kick it, it deals five to any target instead. Mostly, you're just going to be volcanic hammering people. In, the face, or in the creatures if they're presenting an annoying blocker, like our Vampire Nighthawk ripoff, or maybe if they present some kind of 2-drop that wants to like take over the game, a la conclave or Luminar Gasperin, get you some board control early, some burn damage late, classic red card, slam 4 in every aggro deck. This card's great.
0: It's not an instant, but it doesn't need to be, and burn, actual burn is great.
1: I guess while we're talking about our lightning strike replacement, i will bring up our lava coil replacement, which is one in a red for a sorcery. It deals four to target creature or planeswalker. I don't have the translated name for it, but this card is, I think, better than lava coil. The exile clause again missing from this one, but I care less about that than getting to kill planeswalkers. I think that's like a huge deal for this type of removal effect makes it a lot more main deckable so that you aren't like getting into a mid-range war and just staring down something pretty useless
0: so this is something that's actually i've been thinking about how important are planeswalkers after war of the spark rotates because obviously they've been this huge facet of the game for a while but it was a lot of stuff that's going away ugin i mean this this card's probably not doing anything to ugin let's be real
1: well, if they down-take it, right? If they, like, have to minus three or more it, then it just kills it.
0: I just assume that once the Ugin's already resolved its minus X,
1: the game's basically over anyway, but it's possible. Well, if you can just kill it for two mana and redeploy something, I think that's a pretty, like, it's basically just a wrath, right?
0: Well, it's just they're
1: also at the point where they're able to, they've kind of assembled all their resources at that point. That's true, they do have a lot of loads in play, but if if you're a deck that doesn't just automatically lose the late game, for instance... Like, you can have your own control tools, and then being able to kill their Ugin back is a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah, something more mid-range probably plays this card, but I almost want to just, like, sidebar on actual spoilers, like, what what Planeswalkers are going to be, like, a defining part of the standard, do you think? Just because, and this is looking, looking to
1: last year's too, Big Garrick is reasonable, Ashiok for 5-man is reasonable, the Elspeth with Escape is maybe fine. She probably actually is part of the,
0: the mono-white deck. She piles on damage fast.
1: That's a possibility. Uh, Jace Mirror Mage, the new one, I think is potentially decent. The Royal Scions probably still does some work here and there in sufficiently aggressive or draw-to-focus
0: blue-red decks. Important to note that the Royal Scions no longer is just nerfed by the existence of Narset. Like, that that was always the most embarrassing thing to happen, and why you could never really play it against, like, in a blue mirror, was because they play Narset and your Planeswalker is now just embarrassing.
1: Yeah, and then the five-man of Vivian that makes three threes and uh, lets you play cards off the top of your library. Ooh, yeah, I forgot about her. And importantly, she starts at three loyalty and pluses to four. So you actually get to kill her for two mana. Like, the Royal Science is a Planeswalker that's around, but like you don't get to kill it with this two mana deal for. Kind of the same thing. Teferi Master of Time is on five loyalty by the time you can point at it. Jace is either on five loyalty or has drawn a card. In terms of value points, At you're either getting a Planeswalker that minus already, or you're hitting Vivian or you're applying, like, a small amount of chip damage and then finishing it off.
0: Which is reasonable. You're in mono-red, so maybe you're you're doing that
1: anyway. You're not necessarily even mono-red, but, like, you're, you're just doing these... Any of these things is just, like, a very reasonable thing to back up your two-mana removal spell that can take out three or maybe even four drops. Like, it's a two-mana removal spell that can kill Questing Beast. Granted, not at instant speed, which is maybe an issue with Questing Beast, but, you know, th- that category of creature like reasonable four drops it can kill but then also like still have the efficiency necessary to be decent against two drops and also have the flexibility to be useful in once your opponent's playing cards like planeswalkers
0: i mean it seems like a solid card It's the sort of card that, like Lava Coil, will probably just depend on what is being played and will vary week to week on how many, if any, you should register. Which, that's like a good place for removal spells to be. Ooh, okay, let's stick on theme with red cards, since you brought up Volcanic Hammer, the new one. Uh, Cargan Intimidator. One and a red for a creature-human warrior. Cowards can't block warriors. uh, And then, for one mana, colon, choose one that hasn't been chosen this turn. First, Kargan Intimidator gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. Second, Target Creature becomes a Coward until end of turn. And third, Target Warrior gains Trample until end of turn.
1: So obviously just a good way to push through damage. Getting to deny one creature from blocking every turn is pretty big if you are primarily playing Warriors. Although I don't know if that's necessarily super realistic per se. Uh, but even just like your creature can't block my 3-1. That's probably going to be one of the larger creatures in the average red deck, and especially if you're pumping it again to 4-2. So it's like a decent mana sink. A 3-1 for 2 is a large enough body that it's capable of pushing a fair amount of damage when you play it on turn 2. So I think this is just on rate a reasonable 2-drop, and especially if you're of course, trying to be an Embercleave deck where you value a body like 3-1 even more because it lets you just push these huge chunks of damage. But I think this is probably like slam four of in red Embercleave decks and maybe you think about it more in other types of red decks. Like I don't think this necessarily crosses the bridge to Pioneer or anything unless you actually end up playing with a ton of Warriors. This in terms of like if you're trying to beat down with primarily creature damage and not burn damage then this is probably one of the better red cards that you're going to have access to in the early turns
0: i think this card is fantastic one any card that i want to draw multiples of is is great because this can only make by itself one creature a coward but then when you're talking about being able to pay two mana make two creatures unable to block you can just start ignoring what they do they no longer can really answer your board via creatures they have to wrath it or they have to kill things and that's those are the only options so the fact that like the third and fourth one of these are actually probably better than the first one is a really interesting place for a two drop to be The plus one, plus one works incredibly well with Embercleave, of course, because Double Strike and Trample are both things. I think that the the third ability, Target Warrior gains Trample, is probably not that relevant. And kind of like, final point, this thing can force trades, probably, because you can choose to make the creatures that don't trade, or that trade well, like say a 1-1 token or whatever, not able to block this so they have to throw away you know their three drop x3 or whatever in order to get this off the battlefield the the flexibility on this card combined with the fact that the fact that it's just a three power attacker is huge especially if everyone's going to be trying to play a bunch of tap lands and oh boy have i seen some people's lists where we we really just want to play guildgate tribal (laughs) that day just being on the play and resolving a three drop or a three power two drop is big this thing seems like it's going to do a lot of work, and I'm excited to play it. I mean, not a whole lot to say. It's just incredible value, but it's it's one that, uh, I don't know, it feels like it got spoiled and everyone was like, wow, that's cool. Coward's can't Black Warriors, and then that was it.
1: <laughs> yeah, this, this one's actually a constructed card. Like, Boldweer Intimidator, it's obviously like a sweet casual card, but it's a 7-mana 5-5. Five, five. You're not going to put that in constructed card. This, this is just actually reasonable. You can just play this one. Is the Wary a coward? He's not, apparently. He's actually a warrior. This
0: is this is an outrage. He needs to be retroactively made a coward. Not that he can ever
1: block anyway, but that's kind of wild. So Nick has to leave a little early, but before we close off the episode, I do want to talk about probably just my favorite card from the set, which is Seagate Stormcaller. So this is one in a blue for a 2-1 human wizard. It says, when Seagate Stormcaller enters the battlefield... Copy the next instant or sorcery spell with converted mana cost two or less. You cast this turn when you cast it. and It has kicker four and a blue, and if it was kicked, copy that spell twice instead. You may choose new targets for the copies. In general, this kind of reads like a Snapcaster Mage, in that it is a two mana two one that is reusing some spell that you already have access to. And while this is not entirely a terrible... Comparison, it is somewhat misleading in that while Snapcaster gains a lot more about flexibility, both in what it works with and timing, though there are certainly some things that do not work very well with Snapcaster but do work with Stormcaller, we'll get to that. Stormcaller is just much more efficient. So, while with Snapcaster Mage, you still have to pay your mana for the, your second copy of the spell, with Stormcaller, you don't. So If you're comparing, say, Spell, Snap, Spell to just Stormcaster Spell, you're going to save 1 or 2 mana of the Stormcaller. And depending on the circumstance, you could save even more than that. For instance, if you wanted to kick a spell, if you kick an Into the Royal for 4 mana with a Snapcaster Mage twice, that costs 10 mana. To do it with Stormcaller costs 6. So the mana savings can be a pretty huge deal and can make this more compelling in in certain spots even than Snapcaster which is to say, nothing of the formats where Stormcrawler is legal and Snapcaster isn't. So I think this card is pretty strong in approximately every constructed format, so I figured I'd just run through those and talk about at least one idea from each of them that has me excited for a deck that could be quite strong. Let's just start at the smallest format, which is standard. The first thing to note is there are some abuse cases... If you copy a spell that has additional costs to cast, you get your copy of your spell without putting in additional copies. So if you cast Stormcaller and then Village Rights, you get to draw four cards while only sacrificing one creature. But you did put two cards in to accomplish this, so it's really more like a draw three than a draw four. Still, three mana draw three, pretty strong. And that's just to start with if you're sacking the Stormcaller itself. So one of the things that's pretty exciting to sacrifice, for example, is... Archfiend's Vessel. Village rights is obviously a pretty good way to get it into the Graveyard, and doubling down on that is pretty good. Of course, our opponent can interact with this, either by countering whatever card we use to reanimate the Archfiend's Vessel, or killing the Archfiend's Vessel when it responds before the, the trigger goes off. But this is where we turn to the next tool in the puzzle box of Seagate Stormcaller, which is discard spells. In the same way that Snapcaster Mage really likes being paired with countermagic, Stormcaller benefits a lot from being paired with cards like Duress, like Thoughtseize, or Inquisition of Kozilek. And in Standard, we don't have a plethora of these, and like Duress isn't particularly main deckable. That's fine, we'll still be happy with it as a sideboard interaction that's quite potent, getting to double Duress your Your control opponent on turn three, while also deploying an incremental threat to help pressure Planeswalkers or tip away at their life total, is really big game, and we're going to be pretty happy about the ability to do that. And similarly, if you can imagine on turn three, deploying a 2-1 that can block while also killing two aggressive creatures, you can imagine why this is going to be pretty powerful paired with Fatal Push, Shock, Blood Chief's Thirst, of course the new Fatal Push things of that nature in terms of just keeping the board under control, or even something like Brazen Barber as a little higher up the curve, or Eliminate or whatnot. All of these cards are at least somewhat conditional. It also makes sense to supplement it with some number of cantrips, so something like Opt basically turns this into Silvergill Adept with a Scry 1 attached to it. Similarly, something like Cling to Dust can work well with this, and again, that's another spot where Snapcaster Mage can't really compete you get to copy your Cling to Dust either from your graveyard or just from your hand and still have the Cling to Dust hanging out in your graveyard. And that access to that escape card also helps mitigate one of the weaknesses of Seagate Stormcaller, which is that when you draw it with an empty hand and no spells to copy, it is kind of just a 2-mana two 2-1, two so you have to either play it and have it not be very strong or have it sit in your hand for a little bit, unlike, say, where Snapcaster just gets to fire off from whatever the best thing is in your graveyard. The upside is it doesn't have to use your graveyard, so if your opponents are playing Scavenging Ooze or cling to Dust or whatever of their own, you don't necessarily care, but having access to something like cling does help make sure that you always have a use for your Stormcaller, even if it is a little bit more expensive. You now that we figured out how to round out our spell package, we probably want to come back to how we're reanimating that Archfiend's Vessel. So one answer here is Lurus, which you can companion, but I think I would rather just play in my main deck so that I can do this on turn four. You know, you and Vessel sometime in the first couple turns, and then Stormcrawler, Village Rights on turn three, and that's going to give you so much card draw and that you're going to have a, a really easy time finding that Luris from your deck, and it's much better to not have to pay three to get it from the companion zone because the card's just pretty good when you're just casting it anyway. The other option is called the Death Dweller, which of course can reanimate your Archene's Vessel, potentially even alongside a Stormcaller, and then fire off any of those 1-mana spells we talked about doubled up. So that leaves us with just about an entire deck. We are basically one one or two drops short of, of completing the puzzle because we want a little bit more stuff to get back with Luris and with Call. So the card that I like most for this spot right now is Acquisition's Expert, which I believe we talked about last week, but it's one and a black for a 1-2 human rogue. When an ETB's target opponent reveals a number of cards from their hand equal to the number of creatures in your party, you choose one of those cards and they discard it. So this works nicely with Archfiend's Vessel being a Cleric, Seagate Stormcaller being a Wizard, so you have extra types here and there to make use of. So this can look at two or three cards but it's just a cheap, relatively cheap body. It trades for a card as soon as it hits the battlefield, so you can village rights it back away with no remorse. While it is not the strongest rate of creature, it, I think, is sufficient enough to, to do the job. And we've got some pretty powerful stuff going on here in terms of just making five fives pretty cheap, stripping our opponent's hand to resources, and we'll, of course, look to fill out the sideboard with as much as possible, cards that either fit the description of something that is a cheap creature that can be returned with Luris or Call of the Death Dweller, or something that is a cheap spell that can get kicked came- with Stormcaller, though it is certainly not out of the question to just put cards that don't fit that description and just rely on our core shell to still have a lot of flexibility and baseline use cases that we don't need to worry about breaking it up a little to fit in some particularly powerful card that is good against our opponents, say the negates of the world. A lot of these rules we talked about for the kind of things Stormcaller likes and doesn't like are going to hold as we move up into the progressively older format. So if we look to Pioneer next, We're still a pretty big fan of these Discard spells, but now we get Thotsies. We like this reanimation stuff with Call of the Death Roller getting to reuse Stormcrawler, but now we get to upgrade it to Claim to Fame, which is a card that actually works with Stormcrawler itself, and you can copy. Instead of Bloodchief's Thirst, we get to largely play Fatal Push instead. Also, maybe pick up some other interactive spells, stuff like Abrupt Decay or Assassin's Trophy, which brings us to another option, which is playing a third color. While Uro is also legal in Standard and quite strong, the mana in Standard is a little shaky, which is not to say that a Stormcaller Uro deck isn't out of the question, just playing Saltai anyway, because a lot of these cards are quite strong, but one of the things you'll notice when building with Stormcaller in these formats is that you really like having a lot of black mana available to you. Because you want to play a lot of these cheap black cards that work well with Stormcrawlers. So, like the discard spells, the cheap removal, some e- sometimes even the cheap cantrip, stuff like Village Rights and Call, which then makes it difficult to actually cast Uro reliably. And that is going to take some tweaking of the mana base, even in Pioneer as we look to cast Thoughtseize and Fatal Push on turn two, but then still reasonably cast Uro on like turn four or five or so. The Uro also gets more compelling as we move into Pioneer because we get access to Citrus Supplier, which is a pretty good way to fuel the graveyard both for Claim and for Uro. Since Uro and Supplier and Village Rights and Stormcaller all play relatively nicely with each other and are reasonable cards on their own right, rather than Overload with a bunch of cards that either are essentially textless or just kind of embarrassing if you draw them naturally instead of flipping them from their graveyard. You can just play a much more mid rangey strategy. Just build in Thought seasons and Fatal Pushes and other removal and play the game out much more normally where you're just copying interactive spells, copying draw spells, and then just going over the top with Uro is much more of a fair mid-range deck. It is important to note how we are building the mana base, as I mentioned. One thing that I think is important is we should primarily play blue-black duels or green-black duels. Or both, in the case of the Sultai Triumph, which we probably would have play at least like three of, and instead shy away from cards like Fabled Passage and Basic Lands because the additional value that they add is fairly low in terms of being able to cast Black Spells Ur Early and Uro in the mid-game with any reliability. So we want 4x each of Blooming Marsh, Overgrown Tomb, Watery Grave, the Blue-Black Pathway, Maybe we play a couple checklands, like some woodland cemeteries or drowned catacombs. Probably don't need duels so badly after that that we're willing to play something like the black-green painland, and we can just round out with some breeding pools, maybe a botanical sanctum or two. We still want a basic or two in there to make sure we're not just getting hosed by Field of Ruin, that Assassin's Trophy, we can still get a land, stuff like that. But for the most part, we don't want to be playing like the Fable Passage manabases that you see a lot of Saltite decks. And stuff like Village Rites and Uro is going to help make sure that we're still revolting Fatal Push pretty often, even without those. So that does leave us with a few flex slots for actual spells to put in the deck. Similar to in the standard deck, we are going to look to round that out with Cheap. 1 and 2 mana cards that I can claim to fame to supplement just Stormcaller or a, another Supplier or something like that. There's one I actually really like in particular, which is Goal Realm, one Recluse, the 1-2 from last set that makes a 2-2 two, two when you draw your second card a turn. This triggers off of Opt, it triggers off of Uro, it triggers off of Cling to Dust, if you're playing any of those, and it triggers off of Village Rights not only on your turn, but also on your opponent's turn, because you draw two cards. It's kind of like a doing a young Pyromancer impersonation, and it is both claimable and a real clock and threat in and of itself, because it just keeps pumping out this value that can take over the game. That, Scavenging Use, is kind of a classic Pioneer card that also fits the bill of claimable. Other than that, we're just looking for the best of the rest, and we'll have to look come through and find what appeals to us most. So moving on to Modern now, while this is certainly a place where Snapcaster Mage's shadow is felt the strongest, and I am not really looking to replace Snapcaster Mage with Stormcaller in most Snapcaster Mage decks, there is still room for Stormcaller to leverage things that Snapcaster doesn't as well. So in this case, one of the things that excites me the most is Tribal Flames, which Nick actually mentioned earlier in the episode, funny enough. And this is a spot where the added efficiency of Stormcaller just costing two less to copy a Tribal Flames than Snapcaster does is felt a lot. The difference between four mana deal 10 and six mana deal 10, even when you are breaking it up over the turns, is huge and helps you unload your damage much quicker, which is very important for a format like Modern, where just being a turn faster because your cards cost less is game-changing. To the extent that this potentially even offers up new turn 3 kills, even, where if you go something like Noble Hierarch into Mantis Rider Attack for 4 into Attack for 4 Stormcaller Tribal Flames, that's 18 damage. If your opponent helped out even a little bit, with something like a Thoughtseize, or a Street Wraith, or just shocking themselves, or fetching twice, or Horizon Canopies, or whatever the case may be, an Eidolon of the Great Revel, they're just dead. And even if they didn't help you at all, you're still probably going to kill them on turn four. One of the other nice things about Seagate Stormcaller compared to Snapcaster Mage is also that we can double down on the same spell with two Stormcallers, which means if we only draw one Tribal Flames and two Stormcallers, that's just 15. That makes it a lot easier to get away with having these high Stormcaller counts and relatively low Incident Sorcery counts. We need some amount of redundancy to make sure Seagate Stormcaller is a card, which means playing four Bolt, four Helix to go with our, our Tribal Flames. We may even want a little bit more than that just to round things out, like a 13th or 14th spell spell. Uh, something like a Tarkus Command or Boros Charm are reasonable options here. The other option that I think is potentially interesting is Bone Crusher Giant, just in order to fit an extra threat in their deck. Because you're kind of by definition interested in mana dorks in these tribal flames decks, and also you are want to play a lot of burn to work with the Stormcallers, you end up kind of light on actual threats. And while we don't need a ton of threats to push 20 damage, which how much burn we have access to, it is still nice to be able to have a little bit more in, in the tank in terms of something that can do repeated damage. So Crusher Giant is kind of an interesting option there. That could also take that like 13th to 14th instant or sorcery slot. In the meantime, when we are looking at the rest of our threat base what we want is kind of just to follow the philosophy of fire if we only need to get someone to 10 in order to kill them what we want out of our cards is less just being the biggest thing possible at all times and more about pushing reliable chip damage so we want to look at cards like mantis rider i mentioned that's going to push three damage off that haste and off of the evasion and come back the next turn to do it again if it's not stopped uh siege rhino is a pretty strong one if lightning helix is our opponent in the face right off the bat we look can look at geist of saint Traft. doesn't put the damage in right away but thanks to the hex proof and the evasion of the angel is very reliably going to get four damage in before it is dealt with we may even look to go up the curve to something like questing beast to supplement our siege rhinos i'm not opposed to the idea and that's approximately the deck you get a lot of value out of sideboard cards here obviously because you just have access to all five colors and we're not really playing anything like ancient cigarette power of souls or whatnot that interferes with our ability to cast whatever spells we want so we just get to put four thoughtsies in here and double down on them with a seagate stormcaller which is going to be a lot of help with say disrupting various combo decks or control decks but we also get access to stuff like rest in peace if we want to to attack graveyard decks and again separate from Snapcaster, we can freely fire off a Rest in Peace while still having our value two drop still function and still push that five damage when we draw it. Moving on to Legacy, the thing that excites me the most about Stormcaller is basically just Cabal Therapy. This is another spot Snapcaster can't do. When you can play turn one Cabal Therapy, then turn two, you drop a Stormcaller, and then you Cabal Therapy sacrificing it immediately. And you just get to strip their hand twice huge hand disruption effect there it comes down on turn two it's a little bit slow for something like a belters of the world that are just trying to force check you but it's still pretty potent in terms of shutting down something like storm before they can combo off most of the time and it's going to give you a lot of mileage in fair mirrors as well for just shredding their hand and then another tool that applies in Legacy, as well as modern, that I didn't mention then, is unearth where the next turn after you've therapied away your Seagate Stormcaller, you can unearth it back and then start going to work with any of the amazing one and two mana instants in and sorceries in Legacy. You can hit them with more Cabal Therapies or Thought seizes or Hymn to to finish shredding their hands just to absolute pieces. You can fire off cantrips in order to dig yourself further into your deck and just grind out extra value. You can fire off removal spells to kill an opposing Delver or Tarmogoyf for whatever that's that's in your way. And then from there, you just kind of continue with a more typical value plan. This could be in two colors, and you could try to pair it with cards like Eureko, where that's another way to pick back up your storm collar. You can try to pair Young Pyromancer with it to, to Cabal Therapy away tokens. You can try to pair green cards with it, like Uro and Oko, that are just generically busted. If you need white cards for some reason, you can Dode Esper. The, the core is just built off these busted legacy cards in general and is so flexible that you can kind of do whatever you want with it. There's still Vintage, I suppose, is the last format. There's not really decks so much in Vintage. I don't think this is necessarily going to be an All-Star, but you can see how it would fit in just because copying an ancestral Recall or a Time Walk or even like a Demonic Tutor is so high above anything reasonable and also helps you get around cards like Mental Misstep that would attempt to... Shut down your recall. Where now, if you go this recall, you're going to be up a bunch of cars, and there's nothing your opponent can do about it. Short of, well, Fluster Storm, I suppose. You also just get a lot of baseline options, stuff like Ponder, Preordain, Brainstorm, and Probe, any of these restricted cantrips. Cards like Thoughtsies aren't necessarily at their best in vintage because people's starts can be so explosive that they're too slow, but there will still get will be decks and matchups where you have some amount in your deck and you can. Turn to those is another thing to copy. Ancient Grudge is one that shows up particularly in Vintage, but is also present in Modern Legacy if the right meta calls for it, that you can double off of this, but not Snapcaster again. Paying 3 mana for a 2-1 and 2 shatters, is pretty big game in this format. But for the most part, this is just like a high ceiling in terms of copying Power 9 cards, and a relatively low 4 of, hey, it's a blue card, you can always just pitch it to Force of Will. And that about covers all our formats. So I think that's gonna about do it for this episode and we'll turn back to past Nick who has already recorded this side off for us. All
0: right, so that wraps things up for this week. So if you want to find us on social media, you can find us at 75 card pickup on Twitter. You can find me at Nick and Prince and you can find Baker at Vtcla one. The one, of course, means the number of weeks that we have left until we finally get standard rotation.
1: Yes, yeah, so, sounds about right. yeah,
0: I'm excited i am I am so ready for standard. like I've liked historic, but uh, I don't really want to just play endless goblin mirrors. Muxus is uh is fun, but not necessarily it's a lot more fun in on games one through five than games one hundred to two hundred, you know.
1: Yeah, it does look like it gets old pretty quickly.
0: And there are a lot of cards from last year that just never saw any play because so many of the other things were overshadowing them. Like, basically all of Ikoria that wasn't a companion, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah, and just like the things that got hosed by prison effects and stuff, like you were mentioning with Royal Scions earlier. It's like, it's nice to get to play with your cards and have them have text.
0: I think that there's probably a lot of hidden gems from last year that are going to show up in the near future. We'll have to find out. See you, Baker. Bye.